0: This is a CBC Podcast. But your daughter
1: told us you sometimes use humour. I hope they're not dad jokes. Well, you
0: know, it's been known to happen. But uh, you have to either cry or laugh, and I find it better to laugh, so that's that's where I try to keep things.
1: That's Glenn Hoos, and his daughter emailed us to tell us why he's her climate champion. I'm Laura Lynch. You're listening to What on Earth? Where we bring you a world of climate solutions. We love to share the stories of people across Canada working to make change in their communities. And in the lead-up to the International Day of Persons with Disabilities, we knew it was the right moment to find out more about Glenn.
0: Hi there, I'm Chloe Hooves, and I am nominating my dad, Glenn Hughes He is the Director of Communications at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. He inspires me because every day he focuses on what he can do for climate change so for his work specifically he works with people with Down syndrome and he likes to raise awareness about how they will be greatly impacted by climate change.
1: Okay well dad is here with us now. Glenn hi.
0: Wow hi how are you?
1: (laughs) How does it feel to have your daughter single you out for such praise?
0: I was quite uh, taken aback when she nominated me really touched by that. Sometimes I feel like I'm sort of uh, shouting into the void, but <laughs> if nothing else, my daughter appreciates it, so that's great.
1: You're not shouting into the void today. You're you're, you're <laughs> talking to uh, Canadians, so tell me why are the links between climate change and disability so important to you?
0: I work in the disability field. I work at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation, so we have many clients, and I would call them friends of mine now, who have Down syndrome and other disabilities, and then beyond that, more personally, two of my children have developmental disabilities. One has Down syndrome and autism, and the other has multiple developmental disabilities. And as someone who's very concerned about climate and what our future is going to look like, I think every parent who's sort of climate aware Shares my concerns and fears for my kids' future, but uh, it's definitely multiplied for the kids that have disabilities.
1: So tell me, in what ways are people with Down syndrome affected differently by climate change?
0: Basically, anything that can go badly in our world or our society, people with disabilities are going to be even more vulnerable than those without disabilities. And I think it's it's not because of the disability per se, but more about how our society is built primarily for, for the benefit of those without disabilities. And, and those with disabilities can sometimes be an afterthought. And uh, you see that magnified in crisis situations. So if we're talking about uh, climate-based emergencies, whether it's heat waves or... Uh, we've seen all the the wildfires and floods going on. All those situations are uh, times when people with disabilities are at greater risk than the general population. Um, they often need people to help them navigate those situations. And during an emergency, uh, it can be difficult to get the assistance they need. I want to do whatever I can to make sure that the voices of people with Down syndrome and other disabilities are heard in climate change discussions and that as plans are made uh, for various scenarios that they're kept top of mind.
1: But but when it comes to people with Down syndrome, I wonder if you can talk to me specifically about, I think it's heat that's very challenging for them.
0: Yeah, people with Down syndrome can have some difficulties with temperature regulation they ha- just have a harder time naturally cooling themselves down, which can result in overheating. Many individuals with Down syndrome actually sweat less than other people. And they also may be just sort of a little less aware of the impact that the heat is having on them. So they, so would, without- so they may not
1: necessarily drink water or get themselves into shade or something like that because they're just not aware.
0: Exactly, okay. it, it may not occur to them, or they may not know what to do to cool themselves down if there's no one there with them at the moment to, to sort of guide them through that.
1: You worked with speech therapists supporting adults with sound Down syndrome to share their own stories and concerns about climate change, and I just want to play a part of the video that came out mm. of that project about the impact of the 2021 heat dome.
2: We lived through the hottest temperatures ever in Canada, as high as 49
0: Celsius. Climate change is making heat waves more common around the world. Everyone needs to be careful about the heat stroke. People with this boundary have a high risk of the heat stroke.
2: We need to take care of ourselves and each other.
1: Now, I've watched the whole thing, and and it's really good. But those messages, be careful about heat stroke, take care of each other, those are really important. And I'm wondering, Glenn, if you can tell me uh, about the people who participated in that project.
0: Basically, people with Down syndrome often don't have the opportunity to share their views on issues that matter to them. Climate change is, to me, it's the most important issue that should matter to everybody on earth and they have as much right to have their views expressed and and their needs met as anybody else so we created this class first of all to help educate these students on climate change but uh, primarily to um, help them process their feelings about it and then spread the word. So every every word that uh, appears in this video uh, was written by the students themselves with our assistance. And so it was really driven by the students. The focus of the video was sharing their tips for staying cool in a heat wave. Now, every time a heat wave strikes in BC, we share this video and remind everybody of how to take care of themselves. I'm
1: just curious to, to hear from you. What did they tell you about going through this experience?
0: Every one of them loves a camera. <laughs> uh, th- that's, that's a big part of my job beyond, beyond the climate aspect is I'm always uh, trying to help our students sort of express themselves and uh, represent themselves. So I'm constantly making videos with various students on various topics, and every single one of them <laughs> wants to be a star
1: well it it's sure i'm I'm sure that uh, it gets the message across really well, um, but beyond that, why is it important for them to share helpful information?
0: So often, our tendency is to speak on behalf of people with Down syndrome and other disabilities instead of letting them speak for themselves. So I think when a person with Down syndrome sees a video like this, they really pay attention because it's people that they can relate to sharing their own experiences and their own strategies rather than someone like me just sort of talking at them and and coming across more as like a teacher.
1: Yeah, okay. So that's that end of things. But let's go to the sort of what I would consider to be the other end. What more does the broader community and government need to do.
0: Well, I think they need to allow room at the table for people with disabilities instead of just assuming that we know best what they need. They need to actually hear the lived experiences of people and take them into consideration and really give some careful thought to what it looks like to prioritize the needs of people with disabilities in the climate change discussion and in emergency preparedness.
1: Now, as we've mentioned, you do have a child with Down syndrome, and I'm wondering what your hope is for their future in this era of unprecedented warming.
0: My daughter with Down syndrome, who's 19, has relatively high support needs. Regardless of what happens in the wider world, we want her to live a long, full and fulfilling life, a life where she gets to make choices and be as independent as possible and also always have people around her to care for her and give her the support she needs to have the best life possible. As we look towards a a future that's more uncertain than we would like it to be, I just want to make sure that everything's in place to support her. And I worry that if the climate crisis leads to holes in the in the social safety system, we don't want to see her or anyone else fall through them. At this point, I have more questions than answers mm. and more, more worries than solutions. But something I think about a lot, and as we move forward, it's something that I'm hoping to connect with others in the disability community on. In
1: spite of that, all of that, I, I certainly think that your daughter, your other children, are very fortunate to have you as their dad. So uh, I just oh, want, I appreciate that. I just want to thank you so much for uh, for talking to me.
0: Thanks. I may uh, have to clip a recording of that to play for them when they're <laughs> they're not seeming appreciative <laughs> enough.
1: <laughs> yes, do that, Glenn Hoos, Thank you.
0: <laughs> all right. Thanks very much.
1: Now, if you want to connect with Glenn Hughes, reach out and we'll pass your message along. Our email is earth at cbc.ca. And that's also how to let us know about people in your community who are making a difference with their climate work. Once again, the email is earth at cbc.ca.
0: Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil.
2: The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. (laughs)
1: So, just uh, talk to me and tell me how the weather is there today.
2: It's um, absolutely awful, the way (laughs) that you would expect the London weather to be. It's rainy, it's dark, it's wet. And it's a bit depressing, but that's what, um, you know, London does in November. Yes, I lived there for nine. That's
1: Olivia Lazar. She studies peace building and climate at the Carnegie Institute Europe. And when I watched her TED Talk a while ago about something she calls eco-diplomacy, I knew I had to have her on the show. Okay, eco-diplomacy, that might sound like jargon, but it's actually really critical to our planet's future. It's about bringing countries together, especially those that have become global powerhouses through fossil fuel extraction, and then have them talk to each other about how and where to mine what's needed for decarbonization, but do it in a way that protects ecosystems. Because if it's left unchecked, the countries trying to come out on top in what Olivia calls the fourth industrial revolution may actually end up plundering the planet more and making climate change even worse. And I have to confess, I find Olivia's thinking so interesting that when I got her on the line, I got uh, a little fangirly. Thanks for doing this. I am now at the point where I have watched three of your talks (laughs) in front of three different audiences. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's all all Olivia all the time for me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: hope it's not boring.
1: (laughs) No, I think it's fascinating. The stuff she thinks about is fascinating because she's predicting a potential upheaval in our current world order as the planet shifts to renewable energy sources. And that has implications for a resource-producing country like Canada. You know I've been wanting to talk to you for months now, but the one oh. I, the one I was a little surprised about it it looks like you spoke to a conference in Calgary last fall mm-hmm, yes, and I was just I was really curious to know what it was like sort of you're in the in Canada's oil and gas heartland.
2: How was that? it was hot <laughs> it felt I felt very alone. Why did you feel so alone It's a bit of a hard pill to swallow, right yeah because it's Oh, God, we've got the climate change problem. And oh, God, there is somebody telling us that, you know, there is more than just climate change. There are also some issues with the way that we deal with climate change.
1: Issues. That's an understatement. Olivia points to a dilemma. The very materials the world needs for a greener, cleaner future present a whole host of global challenges for the environment and for world peace. But what really struck me are the solutions that she points to. So let's get into it. Thanks for being here, Olivia. Thank you, Laura. Now, we'll get to that dilemma I spoke about uh, in a minute. But first, I just want to know from you, what does history show about the relationship between energy sources and political power?
2: Any country, any community that has tapped into primary power particularly fossil fuels, have been able essentially to back up their own scientific, technological, industrial revolutions and have been able to project power outside of their borders, right? It has helped to build up their economy, to power discoveries across the globe. When we see, for example, the relationship between the UK and how it helped essentially to sort of propel Great Britain in, in its own time to rise in terms of imperialistic terms, when we see the relationship, for example, between the US and oil, and when we see even today the powers, for example, that Qatar, Saudi Arabia hold, we see essentially that anybody who is both a primary producer of energy and a country or a sort of multinational company that helps to process energy and to distribute it is incredibly powerful and provides essentially for, well, the lifeblood now of a, of a global economy.
1: Right. And of course, in, in the case of the UK, it, the, the fuel was coal that brought it to power. But mm. now the focus is on decarbonization and, and that means a shift to renewables. And a a different way of looking at energy. What do you think that that means for the
2: future? The next 15 years are going to be a bit rough. In order to move towards energy grids that mostly rely on decarbonized uh, sources or entirely rely on, on decarbonized sources, we need to extract more and more minerals. That has a number of implications. It has planetary security implications. We're still going to have to extensively mine our way through the creation of this new industrial and energy infrastructure in the world. It's not just that we're going to extract profound quantities of minerals, it's where do we extract them from. And as it so happens, a lot of quality ore deposits for copper, for lithium, cobalt, borate, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are located in areas that are fairly sensitive from an ecological perspective. They're located, for example, in the Amazon basin, in the Arctic in Greenland, in the deep seas in Myanmar, in the grasslands of Kazakhstan, in, you know, all of these different places essentially that have a particular significance in biodiversity terms in ecological services terms, for example, for the regulation of the hydrological cycle, and to help us essentially you know, regulate the global climate regime, or to stabilize it.
1: So as you can hear there, Olivia says that mining for critical minerals can come at a huge cost to ecosystems and to the climate, of course. But there's also a lot of power and wealth at stake. Countries that possess the mineral wealth or that can harness it from others, they're poised to come out ahead in this new world order of renewables. China is sometimes seen as behind the curve on climate change. Olivia says that's just not the
2: case. Well, I do think that China is a huge powerhouse when it comes to the decarbonization effort. If we look essentially at the trajectory that China followed over the last 20 years, they understood before a lot of people within the U.S. or Canada or the European Union that, you know, they would essentially be able to tap into the exponential growth of critical minerals. Um, And then when they understood essentially that the energy transition was going to play out, both within China but also within the world, then they were able to really astutely position themselves As a powerhouse when it came to the supply chains of the energy of the future. And the problem is essentially that they're not just using those critical supply chains to accelerate towards the energy transition. They're doing that essentially as a way to shift towards a power transition that accumulates more resources, more power enabling capacity in China. And more ability is to turn the tables around when it comes to international norms, when it comes to international security, when it comes to the way in which economics are being built around the world.
1: So clearly, she says China is a winner in this new world order of renewable energy. The other big winner, according to Olivia?
2: Russia is a less visible one. Its role around critical minerals became a lot more visible with the start of the war in Ukraine. Ukraine is one of the best endowed countries on the European continent as a whole when it comes to critical minerals. So Russia is actually one of the unmissable actors, one of the key power brokers of the future, whether or not we look at nuclear energy sources coming from fossils or critical mineral supply chains. And in terms of who loses, well, the countries and the companies that missed out on the energy transition and the fact that the energy transition is actually an industrial transition.
1: In that group of losers, she includes European Union nations, Not only don't they have their own bountiful supply of critical minerals, they've largely missed out on securing supply from countries that have the right stuff, if you will. But what about Canada? Here, the push is on from governments and companies to mine at home for critical minerals. And that's happening, though conflict is arising with First Nations, among others. And Olivia says in this new world order, Canada has a role to play.
2: But in order to extract those resources astutely, there are two things that need to happen. The first one is that we need to be able to assess and evaluate the ecological costs of the energy and the digital transition. This is something that has never been done where essentially we look at where is it safe to mine, where is it not safe to mine from an ecological perspective. We all know intuitively, for example, that it's just not a good idea to go and mine in the Amazon. But it's not just the Amazon. If we look at certain parts of Canada, which is also a very strongly ecologically endowed country, Where is it going to be safe to mine so as to comply or to sort of respond to the demand around critical minerals, which are essential and vital for the energy transition, but not mine them at the expense of an ecological integrity in Canada? The other aspect is indeed, well, how does Canada essentially play its role in trying to use its mineral endowment and its industrial capacity and its alliances to restore a balance of power? In a world where essentially the critical mineral supply chains are being used to transition against sort of power systems, we need to have a balance of power where everyone has a voice. We need to transform the current international security or liberal order system as we know it today in order to make it more inclusive. We're really going to create a level playing field which is conducive to peace and stability, especially at a moment when we need to respond to climate change. It's is, this more you, is this what you call eco-diplomacy? To a certain extent, yes. We're in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution. That means a lot of extraction, a new wave of extraction at a moment when, well, technically our planet is in complete overshoot already. So that means that we cannot have a fourth industrial revolution based solely on extraction. We need to have reasoned extraction with a regeneration revolution.
1: And there you heard that phrase again, eco-diplomacy, a regeneration, revolution. These are pointing towards the kind of solutions she's looking at. She's talking about creating economies built on renewable
2: energy that
1: Olivia says also protect ecosystems we're having
2: essentially a tectonic shift of massive proportions within the way in which the sort of modern economic age has been built over the last 75 years, but even more so since the end of the 90s.
1: So with this tectonic shift, if everything goes the way you'd like to see it go, what would this new peaceful future look like?
2: Oh, this is a very good question. We need to be able to restore and massively regenerate land, water systems, biodiversity. We need to be able to indeed sort of protect the key ecosystems that, again, intuitively we all know, right, the Congo Basin, the Amazon Basin, but also a number of marine um, ecosystems. And we need to have a collective path towards how we create a balance between the industrial capacity and innovation capacity of the human collective and how we create and strike a balance with the natural world. This is still something that, actually in the history of humankind, with the exception of indigenous communities who have always sort of worked and naturally integrated the sense of balance and equilibrium that exists between their own way of living and nature around them, this is not something that modern, technologically oriented communities within the human collective have managed to do. And we really need to crack that that nut.
1: COP is coming up soon in Dubai. World leaders will be there. But what you're talking about isn't on the agenda. And I wanted to ask you,
2: should it be? Million dollar question. What I'm talking about at the end of the day is whether or not we're able to reason with our use of energy. And yet the various sources of energy that humankind uses are not mentioned within COP. We don't really sort of talk about the use of coal or oil or gas. We talk about greenhouse gas emissions. And more recently, there have been some pushes to try and include vocabulary within legal texts, which sort of name the sources of energy if COP was really to be sort of ahead of its time, or rather in tune with the current times, in fact, we would sort of come together with all the countries in the world and with all the parties that, are, that attend COP and say, okay, well, we have a limited stock of energy to use in order to bring people within a dignified, safe, and sustainable way of living throughout the world.
1: Olivia Lazar, so interesting to talk with you. I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Laura. Till next time. Before we go, I wanna let you know about a story we're working on. Many of us live with the climate in mind, but some people are dying with the climate in mind too. It's amazing how many calls are coming in. Wanting information on green burial. And i love for this to happen. It gives me look I got goosebumps, you can see it all over my arms. Wayne Hatcher is the owner of Sunrise Cemetery in Halifax. He's turned part of it into a green cemetery. He says commercial burial and cremation take a toll on the climate and the environment. Below those headstones, we have garden vaults, which are plastic. We have uh, concrete vaults. We have the caskets that's covered with varnish. We have statistics of tons and tons of concrete, um, thousands or millions of uh, board feet of lumber, and worse than that is the embalming. This down here with the embalming bodies, you're not feeding the earth, you're just poisoning the earth all the what is it in north america so far i think last year was something like 4.5 million gallons of fluid that has gone into the earth and all that pollution so yes we need to we need to stay away from that any way possible coming up on what on earth we dig into green burials in canada Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We drop two new podcasts every week. And while you're there, leave us a review. Even better, tell a friend about us. That is all for now. This show was put together by Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Danielle Piper, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.